Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. My name is Scott Miller and I am truly honored each week to serve as your host and interviewer. For those of you that have been joining us for the last 100 plus episodes, you know that each week we interview a different thought leader, sometimes inside the Franklin Covey family, sometimes outside the family, when our production crew gets together and curates all of the opportunities that have come inbound to us from publicists and agents and authors alike. And we like to actually mix up the type of value we bring to you each week, typically all around a concept related to building your leadership credibility. And then there are the times when I'm privileged to uh, take my three sons to our weekly trip to Barnes & Noble, where I tend to peruse all of the greatest books that are just, are just out. And sometimes I bring with me the New York Times bestseller list, or that week, the Wall Street Journal bestselling list. In the last couple of weeks, as you know, the Wall Street Journal list publishes digitally on Fridays and comes out in print on Saturdays. And what is going to be one of my top 10 favorite books I've ever read will be the feature of today's podcast. And that says a lot given the fact that I've read over 2,000 books and you see a lot of them behind me. But several weeks ago, Patrick Bet David wrote a masterpiece called Your Next Five Moves, Master the Art of Business Strategy that debuted at number one on the Wall Street Journal list. Many of you may know uh, Patrick as the founder of Valuetainment, which is the number one YouTube channel for entrepreneurs. He's the world-renowned business owner, father, and he's joining us today from his home in Dallas, Texas. Patrick, welcome to On Leadership. It's great to be on with you, and I love that wall, and I appreciate the kind words. Man, all of them are true. You know, Patrick, occasionally when I read a book, I'll tell the author that their book is different than a typical book and that yours falls into this category that is not the kind of book you sit down and read you know, on a, on a weekend. This is the kind of book that is a reference guide that you revisit, I think, dozens of times, at least that's how I read it, which is I'd read four or five pages, I literally would close it, and I would just sit and think about it for a while. Think about what is he teaching me? What am I learning? What am I resisting? I have so many notes from this book, I cannot wait to get involved in this conversation. You are a serial entrepreneur. Like me, your hallmark is vulnerability and transparency. You let it out there. And I think the greatest teaching gift that you're obviously giving your subscribers to your YouTube channel on Valuetainment is this unabashed transparency on what you've learned, where you've succeeded, where you've failed, how you're teaching others. Before we get into the book, would you take a, a few minutes and kind of walk us through some of the successes that you've achieved that have brought you to this book, including your early life in um, Iran as a Persian and your family's uh, immigration to the United States. Absolutely, thank you for that. I was born and raised in Iran, um, October 18, 1978, during the peak of the revolution in Iran. Uh, eventually lived there 10 years, escaped Iran, le uh, left to uh, Germany six weeks after Khomeini died, lived at a refugee camp there for about a couple of years, and I came to the States, Glendale, California, Went to the Army right after high school. I was at the 101st Airborne for about two and a half years. Got out. I wanted to be the next, uh, you know, Arnold, go win Mr. Olympia, go into Hollywood, eventually be a governor or maybe marry a Kennedy one day. But uh, I met a girl named Jean Vierre who was working at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter, and we started talking. We started dating, and she told me she works at Morgan Stanley. I was fascinated by numbers. I always loved numbers. And she said, you got to get a job at Morgan Stanley Dean Witter. I said, I don't have a degree. She said, we need to get your degree first. I said, I'm not getting it. Anyways, long story short, uh, I sent my resume back in the days. You had a fax letter. You had fax letters and had a cover letter. On my cover letter, 
I needed a very solid uh, cover letter because my resume wasn't that strong. I had haagen on my resume, Burger King on my resume, Valley Total Fitness, Military, that was my resume. So anyways, I send it in and I had a joke on a cover letter. I said, if you're laughing right now, this is exactly how my clients are gonna feel if they do business with me. If this is the kind of a person you want, give me a call, my clients are gonna love me. I'd love to represent an organization like you. Fax 100 resume to uh, Morgan, Merrill, Schwab, Goldman, all these guys, even though I knew Goldman would never hire me. Uh, I got 30 callbacks, 15 interviews, three job offers. I started at Morgan Stanley Dean with her day before 9-11. Uh, stayed there for uh, about a year. Then I went to Transamerica, seven and a half years. Had a great run there. October, uh, 9, October 23rd of uh, 2009, I started my own insurance company called PHP. We grew it from uh, 66 agents to today 17,000 agents nationwide, 150 offices. We went from selling 50 policies a month to now 10, 11, 12,000 policies per month. And that's the business side. We raised money, we've grown, we've done a lot of great things with that part. And then accidentally throughout the process in 2012, 2013, I decided to start a YouTube channel and we grew that from where it was at to where uh, it is today. I think we have 2.6, 2.7 million subscribers today and total social media views around a couple billion views. You just described the American dream, but you actually skipped over this idea that you spent some time in a refugee camp. And perhaps you don't want to talk about that too belabored, but I mean, that's something that is not in my resume or anybody's resume or life journey that I know. Can you talk a bit about what it was like to leave your home country with your family, spend time in Germany in a refugee camp? Can you just spend a minute about that so people can better appreciate what you've done and what you've achieved from some unrelatable hurdles. You know, you know what, one thing that was great about the refugee camp is that actually made me realize what we value the most. Whether you were from Albania or at the time Yugoslavia or Czechoslovakia or everybody was escaping a country that didn't offer freedom to them. So even though I was only 10 or 11, 12 years old and I'm talking to them, I'm like, why did you leave? Oh, we didn't have freedom there. Why did you leave? Oh, there was nothing going on in Afghanistan. We were afraid. My parents were afraid. Why did you leave? Oh, in Pakistan, we were going through this. So we realized the most valuable thing that we want, that we're willing to sacrifice everything, that is 44 years of my mom and dad living in a country where they know where they go shopping. They know the restaurants. They know the friends. They know the freeways. They know the routes. They speak the language. They understand the culture. They know the TV station. They know every paper, they know everything about that culture and they're willing to leave the 40 plus years of experience to go to a different country where you don't speak the language and then come to America for one word. And it starts with the letter F and it's called freedom. One word. You know, it's so funny when we came to America, we landed here, we were watching TV and a, uh, the, the TV host uh, said some stuff about the president, terrible stuff, just trashing the president at the time. And I think it was senior. And my mom, mom said, poor man, they're going to kill him tomorrow. And my auntie start, starts laughing. And she says, Diana, you're in America. In America, you can make money being a comedian, talking bad things about the president. She's like, no way. Yes, that's how shocking it was. that. In, and today, look at Saturday Night Live. They just did a spoof of the debate with Biden and Trump, with Baldwin and Jim Carrey. It's got 20 million views. It's a business model in America. You can't do that in Iran. You can't do that in China. You can't do that in a lot of different countries. And so sometimes people who live in America, they forget about the fact that we are some of the luckiest people alive. Unfortunately, when something's around you, like if I have these pictures next to me forever, I'm eventually no longer going to see them. I'm going to be like, ah, it's cool. Tiger's there. Brady's there. 
I no longer see it. It's just there. But when I first put it up, I saw it. I said, wow, what a beautiful picture to put up here of Tiger and Brady, right? When you have certain things that are in front of you and it's freedom, you can build the kind of a life you want to build. Sometimes we take it for granted. I just don't. I hope it doesn't. Um, I just it doesn't go away for people to realize how beautiful of a country it is we live in in America. And I know a lot of people that are listening to this. They're from around the world. They're C-suite executives from around, around the world. My audience is also from around the world. But we have to value that F word called freedom. And that's what brought us here from Iran. So, Spoiler alert. This is going to be my favorite interview in the series. You should write like a children's book. Have you ever considered writing a book for teenagers that have no idea what it is like to be a privileged American? I mean, it would be a, it would be a great book for elementary schools, junior high schools. Let's write it together. Uh, it'd be fun. It'd be fun to do that. Patrick, you open your book with a hilarious story about your time at Bally Fitness and how that was a pivot to you changing your life. Would you recreate that for our listeners and viewers today? Yes, absolutely. So I'm, I'm working at Bally Total Fitness in Chatsworth, in uh, Chatsworth, uh, uh, California. And it was the only gym that had an outdoor pool. I loved this place. I, I loved everything about Bally's. I wanted to eventually be the supervisor. My supervisor's name was Robbie. I looked up to him. He recommended me a book, How to Master the Art of Selling by uh, Tom Hopkins. And it was the third book I had read at the time. First book was a recommendation by my sister, How to Win Friends and Influence People, who also worked at Bally's. Second one was Rich Dad Poor Dad. Third one was How to Master the Art of Selling. So I'm working at Bally's. And I go to Robbie and Robbie says, Patrick, I'm going to move you from Culver City, which was the worst gym physically. It ended up winning the Triple Crown because they had a great team led by Cisco. But it was in a basement. It smelled, no new equipment. But the workers really had to be good at selling because we didn't have the best product. So that you really up your game of sales. So it moves me to Hollywood. It's the biggest club in America at El Centro. And I Worked there as a regular sales rep, and I noticed how much the foot traffic was coming in nonstop, nonstop, and the biggest earner worked at Hollywood. So I wanted to be a sales manager there. He says, I'm going to bring you back here and make you the weekend assistant manager, which paid at the time around $55,000, $60,000. He says, but first got to go to Chatsworth because they're only hitting 42% the goal. If you go turn that around and bring it to 115%, I'm going to give you the job at Bally's in uh, Hollywood. I said, you keep your word? He said, yes. So I left. I went to Chatsworth. What do I do? I got a guy named Oliver. I got all these guys that are saying, I don't want to burst your bubble. This gym has never hit the numbers for the last five years. They, these are different kinds of buyers. And these are, you know, he started telling me that they're Middle Easterns, they're Russians, they're Indians, they're not eating. I'm like, I'm Middle Eastern. I know exactly how complicated that is, but I know how to deal with them. We're going to figure this out. Within 30 days, we had 115%. We broke every single record that club had. And then 60 days later, on the leader's bulletin, I'm beating the other guy named Edwin Guerra, who he said, if you beat him, you'll get the job. Edwin was with Bally's for six years. I was with Bally's nine months. So he comes in. He says, Patrick, I want to have a meeting with you. So I'm ready. I'm looking good. I fixed my hair. I got the nice shirt on, crease from the military. I ironed everything. I'm looking money. And he comes in. I said, I'd like to talk to you in the back. I said, no problem. I'm walking in. I said, if I'm about to get my promotion, we go to the back. And he says, um, I got some good news for you. I says, what's that? Great job with your numbers on what you've done. I said, uh, thank you. Yes, of course. I told you I'm going to do it, and I did it. He said, uh, I want you to be here for six months longer but I, because I think it's working out so well. But uh, I don't think we're ready to give that job position to you. I said, I'm sorry. 
He said, yeah, we're not giving a position to you. I said, I said, what do you mean you're not giving a position to me? He said, we're just not, we're going a different direction. I said, well, you told me if I do this, you're going to give this to me. Everything I said I'm going to do, I did for you. He says, yes, but we just have to go in a different direction. I said, so who's getting that job? He said, it's somebody else. I said, you know, I'm going to find out who it is. Can you please tell me who's getting that job? He says, Edwin Guerra, you know? It's so funny when I wrote the book, two weeks after writing the book, he actually contacted me, sent me a message saying, this is the Edwin Guerra in the book. We haven't <laughs> spoken for nearly 20 years. Long story short, he gives a job to Edwin Guerra. I go to the other room, I print out the leader's bulletin. I bring him, I said, I want you to look at the leader's bulletin. Edwin's at the biggest club, look what he ranked. I said, I'm at the club that was doing the worst, look where I'm ranked. He says, no, I know. I said, so you told me to do what I did. I didn't do it, you're not giving me any job. He says, no. I said, I'm sorry, but I'm quitting today. I resign. He says, what do you mean? He says, I resign. He says, you're not going to resign. I said, I'm resigning. So eventually uh, I resigned. They were all shell-shocked. I left all the people to follow me to the castle. Guys, I can't work in an environment where you tell me what to do. I grew up in an environment where my dad was literal. If you tell him something to do, you better do it. So I'm raised by this annoyingly disciplined man that when he says he's going to do something, he does it. I'm his DNA. I can't help myself. You don't keep your word. I can't be in that environment because I lose trust. So I left. And uh, it, it, I ended up losing everything. I was in debt, $49,000. Uh, long story short, I had to go back and ask Robbie for a job. He gave me the worst job at Bally's, working at the lowest level, which is a morning manager opening the club at 4 o'clock in the morning, which no one buys memberships at 4 o'clock. But uh, uh, eventually, while I was working there part-time, I ended up getting my licenses, Series 7, 66, 31, 26, Life and Health, all this stuff, and I left. But during that transition, I was at Bally's for five months. I left, and the rest is history from there. I ended up... Uh, 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 doing what I did in the financial industry. But that moment when I worked in the corporate world, I realized I don't want to work in a corporate world where if you tell me to hit a marker, I hit it and you don't give me what I can, then I don't control my destiny. I can't be in an environment like that. I have to make a move. So that's kind of how the whole thing got started. Well, Patrick, my big lesson that I think you taught in the book was that you were reacting to somebody else's move rather than executing your own. But those were the exact words you used in the book. And I had to put the book down. And I had to do some reflection on how often am I reacting to somebody else's move rather than executing my own. Teach that concept. Yeah, so if you think about it, Bally's ended up going out of business. They filed bankruptcy and LA Fitness bought a lot of their gyms and a lot of other people did. But at one point 30 years ago, Bally's was a place to work. They paid the highest come, they paid the highest commission. They had the best commercial. Celebrities would go to Bally Total Fitness and had a very big name. Sure. And, you know, they had a 36-month contract. Everybody else was month-to-month -month except for Bally's because 36 months later, your monthly premium would go from 35 bucks a month to $5 a month. Even if you listen to me right now, it sounds like a walking commercial. You know, I, kinda, I can tell the story so well. So I believed in the idea. I eventually wanted to be a supervisor and CEO. Here's a challenge. What if Robbie kept his word? What if he did what he said he was going to do? Maybe I would have been a life ride Bally's. What if that was a cultural thing that I wasn't the only one that they didn't keep the promises on their promotions? Because once I left, then all of a sudden I heard, I heard five other people left as well because the word wasn't kept. So this isn't just about leaving. This is about a culture and a fabric of a company. By the way, Robbie's a great guy. Till today, I have Robbie's phone number. He's a great guy, wonderful guy. I always see him as a guy that changed my life to help me get in sales. But the fabric of the company had issues. They took a hit. We're seeing a lot of that stuff that's taking place with Nokia, with Kmart, 
Kmart, after five years, when the Super Saving Center, 1962 and a half, when Target, Walmart, Kmart came out, all of them came out during the same time. Five years later, Kmart had 250 stores. Walmart only had nine stores. Fast forward to today, Kmart's been out of business for a while. Walmart employs 2.5 million people worldwide. How did that happen? It's the fabric of the company. However, when that happened, I sat there and I said to myself, if I ever run a company, I never ever want anybody to feel the way I just felt. I don't ever want anybody to feel this way. And I know for the most part, most people will conform because they're afraid of leaving a job on what it's going to take to build it in a business or as an entrepreneur, it's going to scare the hell out of them. So for me, I sat there and I said, great, I'm going to leave. And if I ever get a chance to build a company, I'm going to build it on the foundation of making sure everybody else that's working there, if we say we're going to do something, we deliver on it. And if we don't, we have to have that conversation with them and take full responsibility, but we're going to deliver on it. That accidentally helped this guy go from being an employee to being an entrepreneur to being an entrepreneur. I never had any desire to be an entrepreneur. I was, I was very happy to stay in a company, work under a CEO, and be the person's right-hand person for 10, 20, 30 years. Steve Ballmer's worth 60-some billion dollars. He never started a company up until he made his wealth. He was an employee at uh, uh, Microsoft until he became the CEO under Gates. He never started uh, Microsoft. He never took the risk. That was Gates. But he ended up becoming very wealthy. You don't have to be an entrepreneur to create wealth in America. But for me, I got cornered, and then I said, I got to decide what I'll be doing next. So then I started thinking everything in 15 moves. I know we wrote the book, Your Next Five Moves. The, 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 the publisher gets the title, Your Next Five Moves. My original title was Your Next 15 Moves. I think five is too short. Grandmasters know their next 10 or 15 moves, but five moves is a good start. So everything I started doing, Scott, from that moment on, I started writing everything. Okay, so what do you want to do? Well, I want to do this. What do you need to do next? Okay, well, I want to get married eventually, have a family. Okay, if you had a daughter, would you let your daughter marry a guy like you today? Absolutely not. Well, then what do we need to do? <laughs> Number one, we need to change me. What do we need to do? You need to work on your values. What do you need to do? You need to work on your discipline. What do you need to do? You need to get secure. What do you need to do? You need... So I went through 15 steps and I said, you know what? I would let my, mo uh, my daughter marry the PBD after the 15th step, but I wouldn't let her marry the PBD of today. Well, let's get down to the 15 steps. So then I started looking at everything as my next 15 moves and I changed the game. Patrick, I want to talk about the next five moves because it's something that I yearn to improve, is to think more strategically. But I have to tell you, if someone asks me, what is the big idea that I learned from your book of like the hundreds of ideas, it was the premise that like me, you are a voracious reader and you've studied all the greats and you've read hundreds of books in your career and you've synthesized a lot of the learnings. But the big idea that I took away is that now, everyone listen to this. We tend to spend too much time thinking about other people, what they're doing, what they're modeling, and not enough time about us, what we should be doing, getting to know ourselves. We get to know the great Stephen Coveys and the Ken Blanchards and the Napoleon Hills. We get to know them really well, but we don't spend nearly enough time getting to know ourselves. I'd like you to teach us this concept. You know, it's, it's amazing you're saying that. Last week I had a conversation with Jan Miller. Jan Miller was, uh, is, uh, well, was Stephen Covey's uh, Yeah, we know her well. Yep. Yeah, yeah. When, when she told me the story about the fact that Stephen Covey came and said, hey, you know, all these publishers, they're turning my book down. What do I do? And she said, I can sell this book. And the book ended up selling 50 million copies. 
I don't know what the number is. I think he sold 150 million total copies. And obviously, Stephen Covey's a legend with the book he wrote uh, uh, with what he's done, whether it's the seven habits of highly effective people or the eighth habit or any of the other work that he's done. But, you know, when you're talking about your move, here's what it became. The first thing I talk about when I talk to anybody, say somebody is in a bad place, say somebody is frustrated, say somebody is, you know, uh, uh, looking at their siblings, how they're doing, you know, looking at their friends, how they're doing, their parents, all this shadow mentality type of stuff. The first thing I always ask is the question that we rarely get asked, who do you want to be? You know, th- this movie, in, in the, the notebook, the, the beautiful scene where Ryan Gosling is standing out there by the car with Rachel McAdams. She came, spent a couple of days with him. She sees that he built a White House, that he built, promised he was going to build that White House for her. And it's in the paper. And she's dating this guy that's a politician. And the mom takes her by this construction worker and points at the guy that she loved who was a construction worker and says, look, I love your dad, but that was my love, but you got to make the decision of a career man. And then Ryan Gosling asked the most powerful question all of us ought to be asking. Said, what do you, what do you want? You know, it's, what do you want? We live this life of everybody else. It's, it's like, especially with this whole Instagram stuff that's going on, we look at everybody and say, that's how I want to be. Maybe that's how I need to be. You know, the questions have to be very basic. I had a friend of mine that was getting married. He works for me right now. And he says, um, you know, I'm getting married. I said, so what, 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 are you, what are you looking for? Are you looking for some recognition or what's going on over here? He says, no, I'm about to get married. I said, billions of people get married. What do you need from me? Like, I know it sounds a little bit like I'm coming off as a prick to him. But this guy at the time when he was getting married, he had only known the girl that were about to do it. And he was not in a good place financially. He, had, he hadn't even thought about any of that stuff. I said, why are you getting married? He says, what do you mean? It's not what we're supposed to do. So who came up with we're supposed to? Why are you getting married? Well, I'm at that age. My friends are getting married. So now you want to be your friends? I said, why are you getting married? He says, no one's asked me that question before. Can you imagine you've lived 28 years? No one's ever asked you, why are you getting married? Well, what, 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 what do you mean? Why are you not? Why are you, no one's ever asked me, why are you getting married? We don't ask these simple questions. Yeah. I sat one day and I said, um, why, why, why is it so important for you to go make money? And I said, oh, man, I don't know. Well, everybody else is rich. We're in America. Shouldn't we be rich? That's not enough. So in 2008, and my temper wasn't good, I was very upset. I was annoyed. And I had just started dating my uh, uh, wife now, but she was my girlfriend at the time. And I was so furious because I was having a conversation while I would pray. And I'm sitting there saying, why did you give me this life? Why, why, why is my mother a communist? My dad's an imperialist. Why was I born in Iran? Why was I born three months before the Shah was in exile? Why, why do we escape Iran, go to a refugee camp? Why did you put me at a refugee camp with all these different personalities and, and experiences? Why, why, why did you put me in the military? Why, why, why did you give me the math ability, but not all the other abilities? Why did I never take English as a second language? Why, why did I never take English 101? English is my fifth language. First language is Armenian, my mother's language, then Assyrian, then Farsi, then German, then English. Why did you give me this life? Why did you give me this life? What's the reason? Why did you put me where I'm at right now? And I'm asking, right? And then eventually for me, it became clear because I wanted to know the bigger question. What am I put here for? What do you want me to do? Well, what kind of impact do I need to make? Because if it's money, it's empty. But if it's money for a different reason, I want to know what is that different reason? And then I started asking the question and I brought all my advisors around me. I went to an event at the Miramar Hotel in Santa Monica and one of the speakers was George Will. I was with George Will, John Voigt, uh, uh, Pat Boone, a lot of these other guys. And he started speaking. And I had a conversation afterwards with George Will. And he said, 
you know, my advisor said, Patrick's trying to figure out what he wants to do the rest of his life. And I said, I'm just trying to get information. What should I do? I don't know what direction to go. I know I found business. I know I'm good in business, but I want to know what to do. And he asked me a question. He says, how much research have you done why people come to America? I said, none. How much research have you done why uh, so many countries in the world, nobody calls themselves the American dream? There's only one country in the world that they say the American dream, not the Chinese dream, not the Russian dream, not the German dream, not the Brazilian dream. There's only the American dream. Have you studied that before? I said, never have. So why don't you go study that? So I did. And then all of a sudden, my, my belly had this fire in it, and I couldn't stop talking about it. So when we started the YouTube channel at first, the first 104 episodes I did, I, I think the videos averaged two to 500 views. Maybe we got a thousand views we would celebrate. And then one day I'm like, listen, we're being too general. I, I took a step back. I said, what's the, I said, babe, I talked to my friends. What is the one word you see me that I can't stop talking about? says, Pat, you're about freedom. You're about entrepreneurship. You're about capitalism. You can't stop talking about capitalism and entrepreneurship. See, yeah, but I don't want to talk about it. But that's all you talk about when we're behind closed doors. So I started looking. I said, you know what? My one word is going to be entrepreneur capitalism. And I went and played with that because I can't stop talking about it. What does this have to do with the question you asked me? That's who I want to be. This message is in here. Okay? You got to go find a message that's in here. I read a book many years ago by a British diplomat. It was called Leaderless Revolution. He said, the best leaders in the world, they do what they do because of that something bothers them, something they love, and something they hate. And believe it or not, sometimes the ones that do the biggest thing is the ones that something they hate. What do you mean? The saying goes, whatever you don't hate, you learn to tolerate. You don't hate it, you just don't like it. You don't hate being broke and being controlled by the government and the job and fears of having a raise or being fired. You just don't like it, but you don't hate it, right? Well, I sat there and I said, who do I want to be? Once I got clear with who do I want to be, the rest was history. This goes back to whoever that's watching this. You may be a CMO, you may be a director, you may be a VP of a company, you may be a CFO, you may be a CEO, you may be a founder, salesperson. And you know you can do more and you know your capacity is bigger than that, but something's holding you back. Step number one, move number one is who do you want to be? It's all about you, move number one. I can tell you one thing for a fact. I've seen people who had no clue who they wanted to be. They spend a couple weeks taking the personal identity test. They take, take, take a couple weeks going through this idea, studying themselves. Like this, six months later, you don't recognize them. Their eyes, they have fire in them. Six months ago, it was droopy. It was like, hi, so soft. And all of a sudden, why do I see fire in those eyes? Because this person got clear on what they want. It's one of the biggest challenges with most people, why they never reach their potential. They never ask the complicated question. And as simple as of a question it is, who do you want to be? Best line in the book, do you know who you want to be? Do you have a clear vision of what it looks like? At this very moment, is the way you're acting consistent with your future truth? I, I put it down. It's so pragmatic. It's so simple. But is the way you're acting consistent with your future truth? Patrick, you also talk a little bit unconventionally in the book about the power of channeling your frustration, your jealousy, your anger, and using that as a force of will. Uh, talk to that, if you will. Yeah, so, you know, when, when, you're, when you're talking about future truth, to me, future truth is, could be potentially a current lie, but it's a future truth. So, yes. meaning, one day I will dot, dot, dot. Well, how do we know? Maybe you're lying. You're right. It could be categorized as a lie, but it could be a future truth to me. So, to me, it may be, I'm going to do X, Y, Z in the next five years. Well, if you don't, what is that considered? 
Is it a lack of vision or are you lying? Are you, what are you doing? So people around you may be like, I don't know. I don't believe you. They're right to say, I don't believe you. It's our job to have that lie become a future truth. So it's not just something I'm talking about, you know, and, and that's not an easy thing to do when we're sitting there telling people that one day we're going to do X, Y, Z, or we're going to go out and have this vision become a reality. It's a tough thing to embrace. But when you sit there and you say, okay, uh, alignment for me is a big thing. It kind of goes back to uh, what you asked uh, uh, about yourself. I see myself over the years of having now 17,000 agents. I've hired a lot of people. I've worked with a lot of people. And I've kind of studied to see what personalities do well. A part of the book talks about what people are driven by. We're all driven by 20 different things. It's broken into four different categories. And you got to kind of identify which one it is. Some people are driven by madness. Some people are driven by purpose. Some people are driven by milestones. Some people are driven by individual recognition. Some people are driven by a lot of different things. You have to identify what you're driven with at this phase of your life. And as we age, it changes. It's not the same forever, right? But I can tell you what I learned over the years on who the most unhappy people were. And it was so weird when I figured this out. And it was a trend. I would see somebody. I'm like, why? You remind me of that person, this person, this person. Why are you always unhappy? What is it about you? You know who it was, Scott? The most unhappy people I've met in my life are ambitious, competitive, lazy people. Let me say this one more time. Ambitious. You want to do something so bad. You're so competitive. You want to win so bad, but you're lazy. Oh my gosh. It is catastrophic. Why? Because you know you can do better than the other guy, but you sleep in. You know you can go take that company to the next level, but you don't read the books. You know you can go out and be one of the best leaders, but you don't deliver on your word. And that drives this person insane because they have to live in that body for the rest of their life. So for me, the complete opposite of what I just said, the happiest people are, these are my values and principles. These are my non-negotiables. This is how I live. If the way I live is aligned with my values and principles and my non-negotiables, I am very happy. I sleep like a baby when I go to sleep at night. When the way I live doesn't match my values and principles, it's like this, I'm miserable. I'm unhappy. And so for me, you know, this whole concept about key to success and key to happiness, it's alignment. If these two match, you're in a very fulfilled, happy state. Are you sure English is your fifth language? Because you're <laughs> remarkably eloquent in what is my only language. The book is your next five moves. Move one is master knowing yourself. Move two is master the ability to reason. Move three, master building the right team. Move five, master strategy to scale. And move, that's move four, sorry. Move five is master power plays. I, I want to spend our next few moments not talking about those because everybody that's listening can buy this book and they should on my recommendation. What I'd rather do is talk about what's on page 69 which you call the eight traits of a great processor. Because having had a 30-year career in corporate America, as having been a salesperson, a sales leader, vice president, executive vice president, chief marketing officer, an entrepreneur myself, I was equally as captivated with this power of knowing how to be a processor. I'm going to pitch them to you and then ask you to pick out a couple of them and talk about them. Sure. The eight traits of a great processor. They ask a lot of questions. They don't care about being right or wrong. They don't make excuses. They like to be challenged. They're curious. They prevent more problems than they solve. They make great negotiators 
and they're more interested in permanently solving a problem than putting a band-aid on it. I mean, that could have been a book right there. If I could teach everybody around me, including myself, to live in congruence with this, we'd have a lot more great entrepreneurs. Talk to some of the lessons behind these eight traits of being a great processor. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny you say this, like we were having a conversation today on the podcast and one of the things that came up was, you know, this whole concept about how uh, 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 rich people are demonized, right? Oh my God, you're rich, you must be this. And, oh my, you make, you make this much money? You, you must be, you know, all you care about is yourself. And it's kind of going on right now in America. I grew up, listen, I grew up not liking, I'll just be very open. I grew up not liking rich people. Uh, I remember one time my mother and I were sitting there and I said, mom, listen, they keep talking about politics in school and I am so bored, but I have this government class. I got to pay attention to it. Can you tell me what are we? I heard we're democratic, democratic, democracy, democrat. I didn't even know what these words were. Are we Republican? Are we in the, what are we, mom? She said, we're Democrats. I said, okay, great. I said, why are we Democrats? She said, because Democrats are for the poor and Republicans are for the rich. I told my mom, mom, one day I want to be a Republican. She started <laughs> laughing. She's like, she's like, what are you talking about? I said, I don't care about Democrats and Republicans. I just want to be rich. I hate being broke, being on welfare, mom. I'm sick and tired of this family being broke. But I didn't understand what I was saying. Why am I voting for the party that's for the poor? That means I am poor. I don't want to. So this whole thing about asking, and then yesterday I was having a conversation with somebody that works in D.C., and he said, look, everybody's saying this is by far the most important election of our lifetime and you have to make sure that you're voting for this and you protect that and you know and on one eye you know we're the complete two different philosophies fundamental philosophies we are taxing uh, uh, rich people uh, and we have to raise the tax and go back to increasing corporate taxes to 35 percent and raise the capital gains to 39.6 and here's what we got to do and then the other side is no we got to keep corporate taxes we're the highest corporate tax in the world more than any other country. Let's keep it at the 23 or whatever the number is. And we got to keep capital gains at 20, 20, maybe even bring it to 15. So we start talking about all this stuff. And he says, I'm not worried about what happens in this election. I'm not worried about the next four years. I'm not even worried about the next eight years. I think we're going to be fine the next four, eight, 12 years. But AOC is eventually going to be 45 years old. And she's got 8 million followers today. In the next 10, 20 years, she's probably going to have 100 million followers. And she's very good at influencing people, especially the younger generation. So over the next 10 or 20 years, eventually, someone's going to say, let's test this European system of socialism. Let's test it out. Let's spend $100 trillion, $30 trillion on some of these plans that we have. Let's raise taxes to 70%. Let's raise taxes to 75%. We used to do it before. Why don't we raise it higher? So you ask me this question about processing. I think everything about politics today and the way it's ran on both sides is let's just win the vote today. Oh, I'm not going to do the stimulus. Oh, now I'm going to do the stimulus. Why are you going to do the stimulus? I said, I'm not going to do the stimulus. The Dow Jones dropped 400 points. Now I am going to do the stimulus. The Dow Jones goes up 509 points. So I better do it because if the economy and the Dow is above $30,000, I'm going to get reelected. But if it drops to 25,000 and I lose the economy card, I'm not going to get reelected. Pass the stimulus, send that $1,200 check. And people say, you know what? I don't want a lot of changes. Let's do it. Both sides are just making decisions for not to get elected. It concerns me a lot. So what does this have to do with the question you ask? The last one. The last one is they're more interested in permanently solving a problem than putting a Band-Aid on it. Too many times. I mean, this is a scary thought to be thinking about. We're constantly voting for Band-Aids. We're constantly voting for this great idea that America created 
that had only been around for 200 and whatever the number is right now, 254 years that we've been around, I don't know, 1776, 244 years. This 244-year-old company built companies that have been around for thousands of years. If China and, uh, and Iran were companies, imagine two companies have been around for a few thousand years. One company has been around for 244 years. You don't just beat them. You crush all of these empires combined. How? It's because of the ideas. It's because permanently we want to build these ideas. Greg Abbott yesterday mentioned something on a tweet. He said they're recruiting NASDAQ to move their headquarters from New York to Texas. And he said, we just announced that we are adding it to the Texas Constitution that we will never have a state tax. So NASDAQ is thinking about coming here. Joe Rogan just moved to Austin. Uh, uh, Elon Musk is building his plant here. You're seeing Florida recruit a bunch of different people. Why? Because it's attracting people that are creators, job creators, right? I'm looking for permanent solutions. Many of you that are watching this right now, if you're a C-suite executive like yourself, you were CMO for eight years, you went through the transitions of what it is to go from employee sales, sales leader, you said VP, all this stuff to CMO. Eight years, I think you were CMO, 30 plus years being in the world. You know what it is, sometimes we're all tempted to do the Band-Aid. None of us are perfect. We're just like, yeah, just do this, babe, it's okay. And then that problem comes six months later, eight months later, 12 months later. Well, it's our fault because we keep solving stuff with Band-Aids. If there is one thing a great processor thinks is being able to identify an issue we solve today that doesn't reappear, kind of goes back to the other one that says they prevent more problems than they solve. Meaning solving problems sometimes means it shows back up, but I'd rather prevent it. It's more preventative measures by being somebody that anticipates a crisis that could happen. So I prepare the right defensive strategy and an offensive strategy in case that happens. So I'm pivoting the right way. So I don't hit that and experience that again. So to me, those two things would be at the top because if you think from the standpoint of something is coming and anticipating it coming up and we're prepared for it and we permanently solve and we're not putting a bandit, we're permanently getting rid of it, then you're going to have more momentum because there's less distractions, less issues. And sometimes more momentum makes an average leader looks like a greater leader because they're able to protect their momentum. I would put those two at the top as, uh, uh, as the processors. Patrick, for those millions of people who are riveted, watching you and listening to you, thinking about your energy, your stamina, your acumen, your positivity. What is it you do that can be replicated in others when they want to achieve goals that they have? What are the, what are the skills that you have created that everybody else, anybody else could also implement to achieve the goals that they want in their life? That's a great question. I would say to you, uh, for me, is look at your brain as a pie. So imagine if we have a pie and then write out what percentage of your brain is consumed by what topics. For example, um, you may say, well, you know, 12% uh, of the day, my brain is consumed by sports. Okay. So what do you mean by that? I'm going to final, I'm on a fantasy football league and, you know, I follow fantasy football and I'm, I won the last one, $200 and, you know, this stuff. I said, okay, great. What else? 6% is politics. I'm really not a big politics guy. Okay. You know, 14% is my kids, my wife, my family. Great. 2% is my fate. Okay, great. You know, 42% is my job. Okay, great. You know, 6% is comic books. Okay, great. 3% is the bowling league. Great. You know, 2% is the badminton league, whatever. If people still play badminton, all this stuff you write out. And then all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're noticing your brain is being consumed. You can't see that here. Your brain is being consumed by 20 different things. So I looked at myself and I sat there years ago when I was single. I said, partying's gone, 
no more two girlfriends. It's one at a time. I'm going to change my life and my values. I need things that calm my nerves. I need to find an environment to go to that's going to calm my nerves. I was an atheist for 25 years, and I said, I'm going to go find a church. So I went to every single church, and then finally I found a way to calm my nerves. I found a non-denominational place for me to go to, and I stayed there, and I've been there since. And then I said, okay, I can't uh, befriend these folks anymore. I just can't. The other day I was having a conversation with the producer of the movie The Promise that was the story about the Armenian genocide starring Christian Bale. I was talking to the producer, Eric Israelian, who worked. He was a right-hand guy for Kirk Kerkorian. He said the one thing about Kirk Kerkorian, who owned MGM, who owned the catalog of Gone with the Wind and all these hotels, at one point his net worth was $10 or $12 billion. He said every five to ten years, Kirk Kerkorian got rid of one of his right-hand guys. I said, why? He says, because they weren't growing at his level. Most people, after a little bit of fame and success, they slow down because their stomach becomes full. He said, Kirk knew he wasn't going to slow down. And so for me, some of these are friendships that I got to get rid of. I eliminate friends. I eliminate certain people I talk to too much because that consumes my mind. They call me with their drama. I spend two and a half hours thinking about that drama. I don't have time for that. Only the people that matter to me. I'd much rather have five great friends that we stay close to each other than 50 friends that can call me, text me nonstop. Fantasy football, fantasy stuff is gone. It takes way too much time. You got to cut the fat. And that's a very duplicatable message to anybody. You got to do an exercise like this and see where your time is being wasted and cut the fat. And then when you get that time back to put into areas of improving yourself, you may say, I only spend half a percent a month working on myself. I don't read books. I don't go to conferences. I don't listen to audio. I don't consume the right content. I don't consume the right podcast. I'm not around a leadership seminar. You know, maybe I'm not part of a Vistage or YP or some organizations like yourself where you're bringing CEOs together and you're spending $500,000, $2,000 a month where you listen to other people from different industries, have their processing issues. I'm not doing that. Well, now you have that time back. So if you take that time back and you put it into one thing, I'd much rather put 80% of my time in one thing, then put 80% of my time in five different things, okay? If I put that 80 into one thing, there's no way you can compete with me. This is not anything new I'm telling you. Bruce Lee said, I'm more afraid of a guy that practiced one kick 10,000 times than a guy that, you know these stories. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard. I'm just explaining it to you in the most fundamental way for you to say, here's what I'm gonna be focused on. I chose one industry. There's this whole movement right now of multiple streams of income, and I hope I don't step on anybody's toes. I read the book, Multiple Streams of Income, years ago by an author called Robert G. Allen. Nice man. I had a chance to meet him. And it was like, you always wanted to have multiple streams. Never rely on one. Do this and 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 this. And then I read a book by J. Paul Getty. And J. Paul Getty says the complete opposite. Put all your eggs in one basket. Just make sure nobody touches it so your eggs drop out. But put all your eggs in one basket to have one big victory, then create multiple streams of income. See, it's non-conventional thinking because... Those books may do well and sell a lot in bookstores, but I'm not trying to sell books. I'm trying to go do something big to have my vision become a reality. And the same goes to you. So, Scott, great question. I would say cut the fat, minimize the things you put energy into, and you'd be amazed by the results you'll get. Patrick, your abundance and generosity is uh, contagious. The book is Your Next Five Moves, Master the Art of Business Strategy. I encourage everyone around the world watching and listening to buy it, audio format, print, digital, whatever, extraordinary masterpiece. We didn't even talk about the, um, the inventory at the back, the personal identity audit. And there's, I don't know, 15, 25 questions that I thought I would just flip back there and do them real quick. No, no, no. This is like a weekend at a lake. This is like a weekend of camping where you spend an hour or two thinking 
about each of these questions. How do you think the world views you? How do you view yourself? How is the public you different from the private you? Name a 90-day period of your career during which you were the hungriest to succeed. What drove you? How do you handle a public loss? I don't want to give it all away, but I'm going to do and spend the time on this audit. Patrick, thank you for your time today. Honored that you would join us. Tell me, um, what's next? Uh, that's a great question. I am right now in the process of having uh, one of my companies uh, go through an exit, and we're going through that right now. We just did our quality of earnings with PwC, and we're in the process right now trying to find a replacement for myself as a CEO. Right after that, my uh, plan is going to be, I go in 20-year increments. Uh, the last 20 years I've been in the financial industry. My next 20 years is most likely going to be in media. So if you're going to see me anywhere, you're probably going to see me competing in a media marketplace for the next two decades. Patrick, what an honor, man. Thank you for your time today. Best of success. Congrats on the masterpiece that is your next five moves. We appreciate you. Thanks for having me, Scott. Appreciate you. Hey, thank you for joining us as well. If you're not subscribing to On Leadership as a podcast, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab, and we'd love to have you review it, rate us, and refer us to all of your friends as well. And we'll see you back here for another interview next week for On Leadership.